All right, everybody. Well, good morning. It is great to see you all. Uh, my name is Luke, and uh, this is Matthew Brazelton, and you've met Seth already, and uh, we're three of the pastors that are part of the team uh, here of, in terms of our leadership team and staff. Uh, we make up the point team, which is really kind of setting direction uh, for our church uh, as, as a whole with the elders. Um, and then we have other teams kind of that, that flow from within that. And so this has been kind of a fun thing that we, yeah. uh, we've done it a number of years. We are calling it a tradition. I don't want to be married to it. We might not do this. You know, this might be the last time. Who knows? Uh, or maybe we'll keep going. But we do this. It's called Ask Anything. And really today will be as good as you make it. Uh, we're going to try to answer your questions uh, as best as we can from the scriptures and from wisdom. And so there is a number on the screen, uh, 762-685-2128, 762 number. Who knows where that's from? Uh, thank you, Google Voice. All right, so that's the number. Uh, send a text, any questions you have about uh, the Bible, theology, about our church, about us personally, about anything, right? It's ask anything. It's not answer anything. We may not answer. We may not have a good answer, uh, but it is ask anything. A couple of just quick uh, things to remember and then a request that I have for you. Uh, in the passage that Seth read just a moment ago in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, I want to remind you what's of first importance, which is a pretty interesting thought, actually, that uh, all the Bible is equally true. It's not all equally important. There are some things that are of first importance, Paul says, and he reminds them of the gospel. And so to the degree that these questions and answers are connected to the closeness and proximity of the heart of the gospel, they're actually more important. And so uh, we want to have even more weight attached to the answers related to those kinds of questions than uh, perhaps other questions that are less central to that. So that's the first thing is just, just remember that. Uh, the second thing today is just I want to encourage you to re remember that we grow through tension. Part of what I actually like about us doing this is the tension it creates in us. Like we grow through this. This is a growth experience to walk the high wire of this, of this moment. Um, but it's also a growth experience for you. As, as you encounter tension, especially with, with questions or answers perhaps that make you uncomfortable, I just want to encourage you to lean into it because we actually grow through tension. And uh, we say this every time we do this is, is try to let this begin the conversation, not end it. If there's something we say, you go, I don't know how I feel about that. Let it begin the conversation and let's continue the conversation after this or through email or phone call or meeting or whatever uh, the case might be. And then just the request I have is uh, please do give us grace. We are <laughs> doing our very best to try to think of succinct, good, helpful answers in a very short period of time. Almost every question that will get asked probably uh, you could spend a whole hour talking about a good answer to it. So um, we're going to do our best. And so I appreciate your grace on that. Now, uh, every year people say, now... Do you guys just really pre-populate the questions? Or are these actually the real questions that come in? They're the real questions, it's your questions, except for I have pre-populated one question. All right, so I'm just gonna be unapologetic. I have seeded this question. And so here's our first question that I have for you guys, uh, Seth and Matthew. Uh, as we become Ironwood Church, what energizes you and what concerns you? So uh, while they're thinking of their answer to that, if, if you're new with us, uh, we've been a, a one congregation that's part of a, a, a group of, uh, of one church called Redemption Church. We've been Redemption Church Gateway. Next week, we become Ironwood Church, as all 10 of those locations are becoming distinct churches. Uh, we'll have new service times at 8.30, 10, and 11.30. So that's the big transition and 15th anniversary we're celebrating. I mean, a lot of change that's happening here. So um, for you guys, as we become Ironwood Church, what energizes you and what concerns you? Yeah, I'll start. Um... Redemption Church was a was a wonderful thing. Like it was a, I think, a gift to 
what the Lord's been doing here in the valley. Uh, but as it grew, it required more and more uh, energy and investment and time from leaders. And so one of the things I'm energized and excited about is that we'll be able to redistribute a lot of that energy to kind of focus locally here and other redemption leaders in their local context will be able to do the same. And that's really exciting. So uh, I think just having kind of Luke's full attention and Seth's full attention back here focused on uh, making disciples and shepherding this flock is just super exciting to me. Uh, the concern for me would just be um, we've benefited by being in relationship with, with people that are from contexts and backgrounds that are different than us. And I just hope that we don't become too myopic in the way that we see the world, because we live in a community that's fairly homogenous, fairly fairly similar. Most of you kind of have similar values, and that's, that's great, but um, there are other parts of the kingdom that matter deeply to the Lord, and we don't want to miss that. So that would be a concern that I have. That's great. Yeah, I'm energized. I think our, our catchphrase of soft hearts and steel spines, to me, I feel both like empowered by it and confronted by it. Like I think depending on the day or how much coffee I've had, it's easier for me to have a steeler spine or a softer heart, you know? And so I feel like kind of being pushed both directions there and inviting like us to be a group of people that have soft hearts and steel spines together. That vision's compelling to me mm -hmm. that we grow like an ironwood tree, slow, enduring, multi-generational. That's all uh, exciting. Just when I think about like our local church's vision and the metaphors we've assigned to it. Uh, my main concerns are, kind of boring and pragmatic, not as insightful and keen to me as Matthew's. Uh, but I think about like Christine Adams, Patrick Buck, Matthew Brazelton, like running the back end of a church. We haven't had to do all of that. We've had to do some of that. Now we're having to do all of that. And they're doing a great job turning it over on like the design stuff and the launch of stuff. But there's just all the pragmatics on like banking and nonprofits and taxes and stuff that like is now Matthew's problem. And, uh, and that concerns you? It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> And I'm concerned. Yeah. No, it's just it's one of those things like we just don't know how much work that's all going to take. And I just for Christina, Patrick, and Matthew in particular, I'm just I don't want them to burn down or grind out or uh, get embittered to like that type of work. And so far, it's all been doing good. But they're also the type of people who just kind of put their nose down and grind, and you yeah. find out later they're tired. <laughs> so so I'm thankful for them, and I'm concerned for them. I want them to still like our church after they have to do all the spreadsheety stuff. So, <laughs> Yeah, we learned how much you like spreadsheets recently. So. Um, for me, what I would say is uh, what energizes me is, uh, is honestly, it's you. And it's our church. It's like what I think made our church great when we first started, and it was called Second Mile Church, was we had a great group of people who were like, they really loved Jesus. And they really wanted to make a difference for him in the world. And then as we became Redemption Gateway, I feel like we, the same thing has happened. And and some people have come and some people have gone, but there's that, that heartbeat is still there. And I think it's still there. And so that's to me the most exciting thing and energizing thing is just knowing that the power is in the pew. Um, the, the mission is the mission that we're all going to be living as God sends us different places. So that energizes me a lot. I think the concern might be similar to Matthew. I just, uh, there was a really great kingdom mindedness that was front of, of attention when you were one church, multiple congregations. Like you just instinctively knew the whole kingdom of God is not about our church. And I think that's in our DNA, actually, to believe that. I mean, this whole past summer, we spent praying for all kinds of other churches that weren't even redemption churches. So I think that's in there. But I do think that that danger of, of starting to imagine that your world is the entire kingdom of God, uh, that, that would be a problem if that emerged for us. So, all right. Well, thanks for letting me plant my question. And now, uh, here we go.
Can you attend church regularly, virtually, rather than in person? Uh, I'd say no. You can, uh, virtual church is virtually church. Uh, I, I think that for folks who are stuck at home, either like long-term or who are sick uh, or who are traveling, online church is um, a great second as good option. Um, but the best thing you can get when you're watching at home is watching other people attend church. You're not attending church. You're uh, consuming content. But attending church is about singing songs to one another. It's about taking the Lord's Supper together. It's communioning. It's uh, the fellowship, the learning of names, the shaking of hands, the giving of hugs. Uh, and so you cannot do that online. And so I know for some people, uh, watching online is like an only option for either a season or a particular Sunday. And I think it would it would uh, minimize the kind of sense of grief that comes. Like I think missing out on the physical present gathering is a good emotion, is a good feeling. I don't want to minimize that and say, no, if you're at home watching, there's an aspect of grief there that you should notice and name and, and grieve it and, and have it. So I think it's a good second best option, but for someone to be a part of the life of the church, they have to be physically present in the room and part of the life of the church. And so, uh, yeah, it's nice, especially if you're like considering going to a church nowadays, you can watch online for a couple of weeks while you're still, uh, planning your escape from California or something, but it's, uh, it's, uh, but that's not the good long-term way to exist as part of like a people of God, right? If you can watch a sermon online, but you can't attend a church online. Great. Um, all right. Next question. Not everyone agrees, but Jesus was political. How will Ironwood Church encourage us to apply God's word to this year's election? Uh, that's a great question. I love that. Um, I mean, it's something we we talk about a lot. We, talk about this a lot. we think yeah. about a lot. Um, I would certainly agree with that first sentence that Jesus was political, right? When Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand, that's a political statement. It's a kingdom. That's politics. I don't think Jesus was partisan. And I think that's the key distinction that I want to try to make is uh, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God is certainly political. It's not necessarily partisan. Like I think if you were to look at the platforms of the two major parties, Jesus would have critiques with both. Now, that's not saying that he would have equal critiques with both or that he would necessarily think that they're equally problematic, but he would have a problem with both. So there's not one partisan political party that like fully lines up with Jesus. Um, and so what we always have to do in these situations is really go, okay, what to the best of my ability, uh, how can I honor the Lord with my choices as it relates to voting and political engagement in a way that tries to love my neighbor and do the best I can with the different uh, approaches we have? So um, th that's that's one answer. I mean, we um, I, I would say at the beginning of 2020, I did a message on how this is at the beginning of 2020. All right. <whistles> Rewind back there. Some of you weren't around then. Right. This is pre no one had heard of the of COVID. OK. And we did how we're going to love each other through the 2020 election. <laughs> How'd that go? Boy, was ever a lit. You should have told it how we will possibly love each other through the 2020 election. Yeah, I mean, we cast vision for it, but I mean, the world just unraveled and, and so did we. Um, and so I think, I think as much as anything, um, that idea of applying God's word is really a key part of that question is 
what will be our ultimate allegiance? Will it be God and his word? Or will it be partisanship? Um, and, and your ability to like lean into those questions, uh, I think is really different if, if your ultimate loyalty is to the kingdom of God versus something else. So that's maybe a start to the answer. I'd love to hear what you guys would add. So we recorded a podcast on Christian nationalism that's coming out in a couple of weeks on the King Culture podcast that talks a lot for about an hour about this question of what's the relationship between Christians and the secular state and where is that appropriate or inappropriate. So if you want a longer answer to that, check out our podcast. It'll be out in a few weeks, I think. Yeah, I'd just say, I mean, I, I love the dialogue, particularly with people that have different opinions and are coming from different perspectives. I think that's really interesting. I would just hope that we would manifest the fruit of the spirit in it all. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Like we do not believe that, that our eternal destiny is hanging in the balance with this election. We, we believe that the Lord is, he's God. Psalm 100 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made it up, who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And so I just want to like move into that space with just a really firm, confident, secure sense that the Lord is in charge, like he's in control. And if he leads us through a, a valley of the shadow of darkness, like he's with us and he's doing something in that. And so we don't have to fear. Uh, and so we, we can kind of manifest through the spirit. We can love one another and we can have real convictions and, and try to work those out in the political sphere. Yeah, I think one of my big prayers is just in all of it is that God would help us to be disillusioned with American national politics. Um, because I think if we could just quit putting our hope there, uh, we'd have a little bit more hope of actually honoring Christ in it. So, yeah, One thing I grieve about this type of question is most time we think about this question, we're thinking about like what happens in D.C., not necessarily what it happens in Pinal County or Maricopa County yeah. or Kilbert, Queen Creek, uh, Santan, you know, like, and like, I wish we were more locally engaged and more locally prayerful and like anxious. And I mean, that possibly like concerned, like bringing things to the Lord, like what's, what's our local government doing? Cause that affects like the schools our kids go to and the roads we drive on. And so there's like the, the national dialogue, which matters in terms of like shaping tone and, uh, culture but I wish we were more locally engaged and less, I think it's like 90, 10. Yeah. And I well, and I, 10, I feel like it's, it's worth saying just since you brought that up. I mean, one of our staff, Tyler Hudgens is helping lead an initiative to help incorporate Pinal County. Um, and incorporate it, Santan Valley. It's just, sorry to incorporate Santan Valley at, into a city. If it happens, it will be the, the, there's a, there's a hundred thousand people in Santan Valley which means if it happens, it will be the largest brand new city in the history of ever in the United States. Um, there's lots of corporate interests and other interests that are making it difficult, but if you live in Santan Valley, uh, there, are, there are real good reasons for you to get connected with Tyler and to get involved with what's going on, to help get signatures, to help get that on the ballot. All the money you spend in Santan, in, you know, when you have to come to Queen Creek and when you have to come to Gilbert and we have to come to wherever, uh, that's all going elsewhere. You might as well like put it into your own neighborhood and help those people. So he can tell you more about that. But like that would be, that's a great example. Like that'd be exactly the kind of thing of like, if we got way more involved with people doing that than uh, online venting about who's worse, Trump or Biden, yes. Uh, <laughs> you know, 
And I don't know that they're equally worse, but. <laughs> Next question. What I love is that everyone thinks they know what I think, and they have no idea. All right. They probably have not too bad of an idea, though. Okay. What is a book of the Bible you've never taught that you've always wanted to? Well, I would have said Revelation if you asked this last year, but I, we taught it. So there we go. That's exciting. Uh, man. Uh, I would like to teach 1 Corinthians sometime because there's a lot of controversy in that book, and it would be fun to have to land in some places on it. So I think that would be valuable. I also think Hebrews would be phenomenal because Hebrews is just like mind-blowingly brilliant. So those would be a couple answers to me. What would you say? Uh, I really like the book of Deuteronomy. It, it gets this like rap of thing. Of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Jewish guy likes Deuteronomy. Sorry about it. From I know what you're book of the Bible. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Not true. Next question. Because <laughs> it gets that reputation of being boring, but it's like Deuteronomy 6 is like that has the Shema about the heart, how like it people think about it as like Old Testament law, but it's really all about the heart and all about the Lord's forming his people to be faithful. Um, and it looks past itself to like the future coming of the spirit to seal hearts. And so it's both hopeful, futuristic. Uh, pointing to Christ, and it's about the heart of God's people that drives their motivation to obey the law. And so books that I feel like are regularly misunderstood are the ones that I like helping people understand. That's why I like teaching Revelation. Yeah, that's a great answer. All right, next question. Will we have grief in heaven over unbelieving family and friends who are not there? Good question. This is, you think about Revelation 21 talks about how there's all the tears will be wiped away. There'll be no more tears. Uh, no, the, as the uh, famous Eric Clapton once said, no tears in heaven, you know. But there's uh, this ongoing tension too. Like Jesus gives this parable uh, about the man who's stuck in Abraham's bosom, which is like, I think, uh, a, a picture of this kind of semi-hellish space and he's saying like if only I would have known if only I would have known and that at least gives like this picture of like some sense of grief that because uh, we're not going to like have our memories wiped when we go to the new creation or it's still going to be us we'll just be renewed and so I think there will be uh, a holy aspect of grief I don't think the grief grief will be insufferable like we imagine it would be because I think we'll be the presence of Christ, like part of what makes grief so difficult is how isolating it is. And I think there'll be, we don't even have a category for how grief could be not isolating. Uh, but when you're grieving in the presence of Jesus, who gets it more than we even do, the Father who gets it more than we even do, there'll be a sense in which the grief is connecting, not isolating. So I don't even think we understand what grief would be like when we have an uninhibited connection with Christ. So there'll be a surprising aspect to it, but I think there'll be something there. Yeah, the, the passage that comes to mind, I mean, there really isn't a text that, because even the Abraham, that parable in Luke 16, I just looked at it, you only get the perspective of the guy who's in Hades, yeah. not the guy who's in paradise. So, but in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul's talking about the work that we do. We, you know, there's this foundation of Christ, but then 
the way we conduct our lives is like building on top of that foundation. And he says, some build with gold, silver, precious stones, and others build with wood, hay, or straw. And in, in the final judgment, each person's work will be, you know, revealed for what it is. He says, uh, he says this, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So that phrase, he will suffer loss, yeah. tells me, yeah, there will be some kinds of like, oh, man, regret, sorrow, grief, whatever that may be. Um, but as you said, it, it, won't, uh, it won't make, it won't overcome us. Yeah, I think one of the one of the challenges with grief now is this feeling of powerlessness and almost injustice. Hmm. So I I do think there will be a sense of loss because I think in order to appreciate the great gain that we're experiencing the presence of the Lord, we have to have something to juxtapose it against. We have to have memories of what it was to feel grace, to feel mercy, to feel gratitude. Um, there has to be an an opposite. Um, but I. But I don't think that there will be a feeling of injustice. I think it will maybe more be like a sadness that the, that the person who was given every opportunity to choose to trust the Lord choose to trust themselves instead. And I think um, potentially sometimes we wrestle with that this side of heaven because we're idolatrous and our hearts can actually love our loved ones more than we love the Lord. And that's actually not good for us and it's not good for them. And that will be corrected in heaven. And so it's not to say that there won't be a significant feeling of loss or even that we will, won't continue to love, but that love will be um, tempered by the, the glorious, just presence of God that kind of creates a peace in the midst of it, I think. Yeah. Good. All right, next question. A close friend of mine was religiously and emotionally abused by his parents as he grew up and now continues to mock Christianity. How do I show him the love of Christ? Um, man, I'm, yeah, that, uh, that's heartbreaking. This makes me think of one of Paul's, uh, sayings. I think it's in Romans two, where he says, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. And just the really direct cut that Paul makes to God's people of, uh, there's this, like, they're not, he, he's even saying the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles, not even because of the Gentiles, or because they're Gentiles, but because of you, like your hypocrisy created this uh, blasphemy. And so when we misrepresent Christ, like you think about all of like the, that gets talked about, about people constructing, deconstructing their faith. Uh, you you kind of have to go back to the seed of like the initial cause. Now it's not to say that someone's not responsible for being a blasphemer. Uh, like, well, you sinned against me, therefore I'm justified in being a, a blasphemer or mocking. That's, that's what I mean when I say mocking of Christianity, mocking of God. The scoffer in the Old Testament is not in good shape. Uh, they're, they're really seen as the furthest from God. But I think if you go back to the source of the pain and are able to identify with it and identify with the anger, identify with the injustice, connect with them in that, uh, ask a lot of questions about the abuse and say, Hey, do you want to talk about this more? Cause this is not right. And, uh, and, and even being able to connect with that emotion there, but then all, so that's like the curiosity piece. But then I think the vulnerability piece is being willing to say like, Hey, just so you know, when you mock Christianity, like that's me and that's hurtful to me too. Hmm. Like I have a friend, uh, his name, and, and he was a mocker of Christianity online. And one of the things that 
uh, flipped him. He has a book coming out on deconstruction in a couple of months. One of the things that flipped him was someone on Instagram said like, hey, just so you know, like I like you, but I had to unfollow you on Instagram because when you mock God, it like really roused me up and I don't want to hate you. So I'm unfollowing you. And he's like, whoa. And he realized that like there's real people he's mocking. And so you having vulnerability around like how you feel when he speaks like that about Christ, about the church and saying like, hey, that's me, just so you know. And it hurts my feelings, which sounds like a really childish thing to say, but I think that's a healthy, appropriate adult thing to say is like, hey, that hurts my feelings, just so you know, and kind of putting it back on that person. So identify with the anger and then give him the chance. I think it's a him. Uh, yeah, I give him the chance to identify with your emotions and possibly there might be a connection there that leads to maybe like actual discussion about the truth claims of Christianity, not just kind of emotion vomiting at each other. That's right. good. Next question. Scripture gives three categories of relationships, single, celibate, and married. Are they equally important? And does our ch church promote all three? Um, I guess I'd want to first interact with those three categories. I, I suppose I'm not sure what people, what the person means there. I'm, maybe because if you're single and you're following Jesus, you should also be celibate until you're married, right? Like there's people who are single and therefore not having sex and people who are married and therefore having sex. With their spouse. With their spouse. <laughs> Only. That's how it's supposed to be. Uh, perhaps the person means though someone who's like temporarily single versus someone who has like a kind of calling of celibacy or lifelong singleness and marriage. So I'm, I'm gonna just, since I don't know, I'm gonna guess that that's what the question's asking. Yeah. Um, so temporarily, like I'm single right now, but I'm hoping to be married versus I'm going to be single my whole life versus I'm married. Are they equally important? Does our church promote all three? I think we want to honor all three. Um, all three are biblical and, and you can follow Jesus and be a faithful Christian. I, I think we're going to tend to lean toward the, the married side because we believe that generally speaking, that's kind of the, the biblical call and pattern for, um, for most people is to get married and, and do, do married life well, which, which our society desperately needs help with that. Um, our world desperately needs help with that. I think the family is the foundation of society. It's the first institution God initiates even before sin enters the world. I mean, husband and wife are married. Um, and so I think we're probably going to spend the most time providing resources and attention in that direction because that's where most, most people in our church will find themselves. There also is a bit more biblical instruction about marriage than there is about singleness or celibacy, though the Bible does speak of, of you know, all of that. Would you add anything, Seth? Yeah, I, I like, uh, they're all equally honorable, but I think marriage is more important. Uh, I think it's the, the default. Um, yeah, and if we're going to be Bible teachers, which is the goal, the Bible talks about marriage as almost like 90% plus. Even in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about, I wish all were single as I am. I see he's giving that in light of the parenthetical comment he makes, like in light of this present distress, such that like a commitment to celibacy is the exception, not the norm. And so it's honorable in circumstances, uh, but pretending like it's 50-50, it's like, no, I think the default settings would be you grow up and get married and have kids. And there are exceptions to that normal. Uh, and without marriage and family, society ceases to exist. So uh, you can have one without the other. 
you can have marriage and no celibacy, but you can't have celibacy and, and marriage. So marriage is the first priority there. I think what I would say to us as like, as the church family is we just have to really watch out that we don't treat, especially in a, in a church where there are a lot of married folks, that we don't accidentally treat single people like they are second class in the family of God. Um, I remember years ago when Molly and I were married, but we didn't have kids and we met these people uh, on our street and they're like, do you have kids? And we said, at that point we didn't, we said no. And they were like, ah, and they just like didn't want anything to do with us anymore. And they were Christians and we were like so excited that all oh, these Christians in our neighborhood and we could like do some stuff together. They didn't even want to be near us anymore. And it was very clearly this like the way we were functionally treated was, yeah, you don't matter because we have kids, you don't. And I think that married people can, can and do often do that usually unintentionally to single people. And I think we need to be more mindful of how we, how we do that. All right, next question. There seems to be some missing literature from Jesus' life, specifically from ages 12 to 30. Some literature speaks to him possibly spending time in Nepal. Can you speak to any of these missing years? I wouldn't call it missing. I would call it absent. I think missing implies it ought to be there and it's not. Uh, but I think when uh, the Lord is giving us the instructions he wanted us to give us, he gave us what we needed. Uh, so it's not as though like it's redacted. I just think it's just not there. And so I think if anything, the absence there, the, all the Bible is a selective telling of history. It's not an exhaustive telling of history. And so God gives us select tellings based on what's most important for the formation of people. John even says this in his own book. He says, there's a lot of other stuff I could have told you, but I told you this. And so I think we should be content to receive that. So uh, as far as like the missing years goes, I think the main thing I would say is the Lord clearly didn't think it was that important. So he left it out. Have you ever heard about the Nepal? I've never heard that before. I have not, no. I just wouldn't spend a ton of time on it. There's a lot in here that we need to apply and figure out before we go looking for other stuff. So that'd be my That's thought. Good word. Yeah, a bunch of people are going to start Googling Jesus in Nepal now. <laughs> like, no, read your Bible. Well, that is, that is, it kind of opens the door to like some of the LDS heresies, you know, like what else isn't in there? Oh, maybe there's a story of Jesus coming to America. Like, no, that's an Eddie Murphy movie, not the gospel. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, next question. We spent the last few weeks celebrating the strengths of Redemption Gateway, but what are some things you would like to see us grow in as we move forward as Ironwood Church? That's great. I love that question. Yeah. I mean, I, a number come to mind. I'll just start with one, but I, I think we need to grow in our ability to lament as a church. Um, I've had conversations with people that have been here a long time and love this church, but feel like at times it feels a little plastic, feels a little too smiley and... There's a lot of people hurting and uh, we've tried to press into that reality and figure out how do we live, how do we live in light of that truth that, that we're suffering and yet we're not defeated. Um, and I think there's still room to grow there. Uh, for me, I, two things pop in my head. One is um, just evangelism, like uh, each of us sharing our faith with someone that doesn't know Christ in our daily life. Like, I don't know how many times each of you got to do that this past year. I don't know how many times each of you got to have someone actually become a Christian with you. Uh, God used you in that process. But um, I think that uh, when, when you're doing that work of sharing good news in your real life, like it just dials everything else up. It, it, moves, it moves all the Christian stuff from like theoretical to like it's game time now. It's not 
it it's a difference between like being someone who works out sometimes and being someone who's training for something. And so I think that would just not only help people meet Christ, but it would also just dial up our the intensity of our discipleship. Um, and then I think the second thing, and I, I, I hope I can articulate this well. Um, I have no doubt that we love the next generation here. I don't feel confident that we understand them. Like the, the culture and worldview and just sensibilities of what makes sense in the world is so different from even people who are 35 and people who are 15. And uh, I just, I'd like to see us just do more work of curiosity. Um, it doesn't mean we won't be able to eventually critique or point out challenges, but we'd actually be able to do it from a place of understanding versus, I mean, who likes to be critiqued by someone that doesn't, that you, I don't, you don't even understand me. You can't critique me. Um, and so I think if we're going to help that next generation become more like Christ, we have to understand that the default settings they have in their heads are not the same as ours, even for the ones who grew up in church. So I think that would yeah, be the something. The poll for every generation is they hope the next generation will become like them. Yeah. And that's actually, we're actually wanting the, them to become like Jesus. So. What would you say, Seth? The first thing that came to my mind was evangelism. I think we assume everyone who comes to this church is a Christian. And when we find out someone isn't a Christian, we kind of get clunky and weird. And then personal evangelism. So both corporately and individually growing in that. We're starting a ministry about that in the next few months. We're going to start as prayer gatherings that I'm going to be leading. So if you'd like to grow in that or be part of growing that, just shoot me an email and I can add you to our we're start a little prayer group that will be starting in February. That's great. All right, next question. Throughout the Revelation series, the refrain of preparing, not predicting, was consistent. What do you view as the most important tangible ways we can prepare individually and corporately for Christ's return? Ammo? Yeah, no, stock I, ammo. I'm, I'm joking. I have some uh, ammo. What do you view as the most important tangible ways? I, I imagine the person is kind of like, the, it's the tangible word that I think people are. Yeah, I can speak. So for me personally, like this is definitely something I've been wrestling through. I, I am so easily swept up in the, uh, the American dream story that like a successful life is up and to the right. My bank account should be growing. My future prospects should be bright. My kids should be healthy and moving toward wealthy and wise. Um, and like the way Jesus moves in the world is actually through death and suffering. He takes the low road. It's almost it's almost anti-American climb the ladder story. And so um, I'm constantly wrestling with this tension of, do I really believe what Revelation says is true? Do I really believe that the things that are presented as good and true and beautiful by the world actually are the way of the dragon? And it's actually this path of suffering, whether it's, um, you know, and it takes many forms. Is That's actually the way to eternal life and union with Christ is more important than, than all those other things I mentioned, man, that like, that's a daily struggle for me as I'm making decisions about how to spend my money, how to spend my time, how to relate to my kids, how to, what directions to push them, how hard to push them. I feel like it's constantly on my mind. So it's choosing this, this low path, this path obscurity of suffering rather than this, this kind of celebrated path, right? That every, everyone loves to kind of look at and go, Oh, the Lord must be with you. You're mm. doing great. You know, mm. that's, 
I don't. Think I think of sense. a few. I mean, just so much of it is like here's this stream of the world that it, that you're seeing. This is what Babylon is. The way to prepare is to counter that. So I think, okay, what were the what are some very counter cultural practices? And so three come to mind. I'm sure there's more, but I think about prayer. I mean, prayer is stopping and saying, I don't have what it takes. God, you do. There's nothing more countercultural than that, other than maybe the next one, which is repentance. You know, not just dismissing your sin, not just saying, well, everybody does it, or, well, I'm not perfect, or, but actually going, I've grieved a holy God through my sin, and I'm going to turn from it, and I'm going to make it right in the places I've hurt people, and I'm going to, like, change. Like, I'm going to repent. So I feel like that's incredibly countercultural. I had a third one. Like, oh, and then I think to give. I mean, a ton of the, the, the condemnation of Babylon was this consumption and wealth gaining thing. And I think anytime we give and anytime we're generous, we're counteracting the forces of Babylon. And so I would think about what are this, the, I mean, what are the countercultural Christian practices? Those would be the ways you begin to tangibly prepare. Any of you, Dad? No, it's pretty good. All right. Pretty good. That'll work. All right, next question. With the transition from redemption, will there be any changes to the terminology of our church's convictions or doctrine? Yeah, great question. Uh, no, they won't. Uh, the only thing we're changing in our membership packet and is we're simplifying the language in the covenant member agreement. So we're not adding anything doctrine convictions wise. So if you want to see that, we'll have it ready next month. Agreements, the, it's the same things you're agreeing to, just a little simpler layout. Yeah, the same it. thing that Luke taught when he taught strong, uh, so, soft hearts and steel spines was these like five things like attend, serve, give, uh, go, pray. Um, I think that was on close Something enough. Like close enough. Yeah. Pretty good. Trying to, trying to simplify. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. <laughs> We're trying to sim simplify the, when I sign up to be part of this church, here's what I'm signing up to, but that's like the very last page and it's not doctrine and convictions. Great. Next question. What is your view from a biblical perspective on the Israel and Palestine conflict? So on the nature of, so the word Israel is complicated, biblically speaking, because Israel can mean uh, the community of faith, uh, the descendants of Abraham. Israel can mean the, the piece of land, uh, or Israel can mean like the nation state established in 1948. And it's really important for us to understand that God is not in covenant with the nation state established in 1948. Uh, God's covenant is a people of faith who have trust in Christ. Um, and so the people of God that he is in covenant with are those who have repented from their sin and trust in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. So from like a purely biblical theological perspective, uh, the word Israel kind of gets dicey because people want to import all of the Old Testament verses into the political nation state established in 1948, and you can't do that. Um, second, uh, we understand that like war is hell. It's a foretaste of hell. Uh, whether you believe in just war theory or not, uh, we should understand that like war is not good for people. People die. There are always civilian casualties. And so the, the first biblical perspective we have is one of lamentation that we hate the fact that lives are lost. We hate the fact 
that women and children are killed. We hate the fact that non-combatants are wounded. We also hate the fact that combatants are wounded. None of this will be present in the new creation. And so our first default position should be one of grieving and lamenting and praying. Uh, thirdly, I think we also like want to be clear that we think the Bible supports people's right to defend themselves and the right to defend their families. And so the self-defense situation there is is uh, important to understand. Um, but as far as like how the geopolitical entities of in the Middle East relate to each other, where the lines should be drawn on the map, what the terms of engagement should be, who gets what tax dollars where, um, these are more wisdom issues that we hope people uh, out of love with their neighbor make good choices. Uh, we hope that Maybe we don't hope that. Maybe we have wishful thinking that they will make good choices. Um, and so just like um, we pray for our political leaders to make wise and good policy choices, we pray for theirs as well. But I don't think there's a Bible verse on where the lines should be drawn and how they should relate to each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I say this as someone who's, like most of my family is Jewish. You know, we trace our roots back there. That the question of how do we love our neighbors is more significant there than I think the way the various covenants in the Old Testament relate to the current political nation states there. The only thing I would add for, I mean, I have lots of views about this thing, but I don't have a lot from a biblical perspective. They're just kind of my perspective. The, the one that I would say from a, a biblical perspective is um, it is striking how, um, there is consistent, quick anti-Semitism always in history. Um, I mean, I think that's one of the things that floored me on this deal was how quickly um, a lot of people were like unapologetically. I mean, from the river to the sea. I don't know if you've looked at a map of Israel, but there's the river and there's the sea. And it's going like, that's, that's calling for the annihilation of Jews. And you go, man, in a world that seems to be so awake, to injustice, not on that issue, and you go, why? And I think there's something there about there is a, um, there is a, there's powerful uh, evil powers and principalities that I think have created a stronghold that make it where um, the Jewish people are and will be until Christ returns consistently hated. And I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's the only explanation to me of like why there can, I mean, we're less than a hundred years from the Holocaust. And I saw, what was the stat you quoted the other day? 30% of people under Gen 35 Zers. don't even believe that, that there was a Holocaust. Yeah. And anyway, you, you have a Bible open. Yeah. Right. So the, the question to me about Israel and, Ham and Hamas is a much clearer answer to me than Israel and Palestine. And here's the verse that I've been praying that has uh, been rattling around my mind. This is out of Psalm 137. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, uh, you, could you could swap Edomites for uh, Hamas here. How they said, let us lay it bare, lay it bare down to foundations. And then the prayer turns to uh, those and says, O daughter of Babylon, you are doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. So the Old Testament Jews had a real category for the prayers of imprecation, imprecation, imprecatory prayers, um, that the evildoers will be destroyed and that justice will be done. 
and so I think we can pray imprecatory prayers against those who commit and do evil. Uh, and so to me, the Hamas-Palestine relationship is more complex, but the my view on Hamas is pretty clear. Um, one thing I'll add is uh, on the King Culture podcast that Seth and I do, uh, we've had one episode that was about worthless men that very much relates to this question, especially around Hamas and terrorism. We've got another one. I don't think it's out yet, but it's about just war theory and kind of interacting with the arguments for and against just war theory. So those might be things you check out again, King and Culture with the little ampersand, King and Culture. So did you have one more thing you wanted to say? Yeah, I just, I th think this gets lost. Um, it, the, when the secular media is covering this, they don't want to talk a lot about the religious nature of what's going on, mm -hmm. but I, that's a real thing. And um, Hamas is doing this in the name of Islam. And we just should recognize like, they have a deep and sincere faith that we believe leads to death. And it, like, it's literally being manifested. Mm. And it's worth seeing that. Like, it, don't ignore that. It's, people want to kind of uh, point to, um, you know, inhumane conditions as a reason for this. But that's not even what Hamas says. That's not even what they're saying. They're saying that they, this is a religious conviction that yeah. they should wipe out these people. And we believe that's a false religion that's demonic. Yep. So, yeah. All right. Uh, next question. Why doesn't our church do public altar calls for salvation? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah, you know, the, we understand this, the, uh, what we call it, the fencing of the table moment when we take communion, which is if you're not a Christian, you cannot take this. The way you become a Christian is by exercising faith and repentance. So we don't think there's anything um, necessarily magical about coming down because we, when we don't have technically an altar, but we think the, the point of the altar for us is the, is the Lord's table. And so uh, the Lord's table is a mini altar call every week. If you're not a Christian, uh, you're, you can't come to this table, but if you like to become a Christian, you trust Christ, faith and repentance, then you welcome to this table. So that's a, a bit of like a in the seat altar call every week. Um, and the kind of come on down thing that those have their time and their place. And we, we're not against doing things like that. We just don't. But we see the Lord's table as functioning as an altar call mini moment every single week. Yeah. I, the only thing I'd add for that is we, I will frequently at the end of a service say, hey, if you'd like to become a Christian today, our prayer team is there. We'd love to do that with you. So that is an opportunity that way. I, I think as much as it for, for me as anything, I, never, I didn't grow up in an environment that did that. And so it feels... I'm just not comfortable. It, it's not a comfortable thing for me, which doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It just means I'm less inclined to do things that feel super like, uh, not my thing. Um, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with it. Uh, but that's kind of a, my thought on it. All right. Next question. What is hell? Is it eternal separation from God, a pit of fire or something else? It's definitely eternal separation from God. Um, would you add anything? <laughs> yeah, well, the, so when you talk about metaphors in the Bible, there's the concrete and the abstract. And so the word Gehenna, which is often translated hell, is literally a trash pile heap of pit of fire outside of the city. And Jesus talks about you go to hell if you don't die with, with faith and repentance in Christ. And so whether that's a metaphor for something or a concrete description of a real place is sometimes difficult to understand, which is why this question is there. It's at least a metaphor, 
for your outside of the city experiencing something deeply unpleasant, which it would be eternal separation from God. Uh, whether there's actual fire there or not, uh, I, I'm not sure. But we do know is that you don't want to be there. It's unpleasant. Uh, it's it's torturous, and it's separate from God outside of the kingdom. And so uh, a pitifier is certainly a good metaphor, whether that's literally what it's going to be like. I think that's more of a picture we get from like Dante's Inferno than from uh, Old New Testament exegesis. Uh, so the pitifier is a good metaphor at least for separation from God and what that feels like. There's also no biblical indication that I know of that you, once you get there, you can get out. So it's, and that's pretty serious. Yeah, in 2 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 5, it's talking about the judgment of God against those who are, uh, you know, against God and against the church. And it says, um, let's see, in verse uh, 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, they'll experience in flaming fire, he will be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So there you have at least a, a number of descriptions, right? There's the flaming fire, vengeance, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his might. Um, what exactly that looks like, what exactly that feels like, what exactly the kind of dimensions of that are, the Bible doesn't say, but all of these images are piling up to say, repent and turn and trust in Jesus. Like, you know, get out while you still can and uh, experience the life of Christ. Next question. Oh, were you going to say something, Wes? Uh, let's do, oh, let's do, this is the last one. Yeah, I, I had my time wrong. Okay, last question. Good questions, everybody. Uh, is Sunday morning service primarily for the believer, come to worship God, or the unbeliever, seek and find God? I think it's definitely primarily for the believer. Uh, like I think about it's a family dinner where there are guests. Like uh, if you end up looking past the family for the guests, you kind of miss the point of the dinner. Uh, but it's also there are guests. And so we should assume that there are guests present. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, that when uh, the people of God are gathered, uh, that unbelievers will walk in and be in awe or be surprised at the power of God moving among them. And so I think that the Sunday gathering, we should think about it as a family dinner with guests. Yeah. And so there's hospitality, there's energy into welcoming. There are some things you do, especially considerate of guests, um, but it's first and foremost, the building up of the believers, spring one another on to love and good works and calling each other to faith and repentance and fellowship and the gathering, things like that. So I think the primary word there is really important. It is primarily for God's people and there are guests who are hopefully coming to meet God. Awesome. Uh, teens and social media. Number one, should they have it? Number two, how do you balance and monitor it as a parent? Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok. Uh, someone Seth, wrote a thesis about yeah, this. Yeah, if only someone had written a doctoral dissertation <laughs> about this. Uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, Seth wrote his doctoral dissertation on uh, neodocetism and digitization, obviously. You know what that is. We all know but what that means. A lot of it had to do with how does living in a constant digital world impact Gen Z's view of themselves and their bodies. And so he tapped into this a lot. Um, you don't have teenagers. We do. I've made no mistakes parenting teenagers. <laughs> None. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Trout, what would you say to that? 
So that first question, and then we, maybe we can answer the second one. Um, all, the, all the data on Instagram, especially for teenage girls, is that it's destructive. I think we should treat social media like alcohol. Uh, so whatever the metaphors you want to apply there in your own parenting, start there. It's not like sugar, like a little bit every day. I think it's closer to alcohol, like, will this kill me? And is it wise? And, I, and so uh, I think that starting with the right metaphor is important. I think it's important to have like supportive parents who are walking with you, who have kids in a similar season of life so that you can bounce ideas and best practices off each other. And even to some degree covenant together on, we're going to try to do this together really well. Cause what, one thing that's tough is when your kid is the only kid without the things that all the other kids have. So having so Seth push in though, like that analogy, okay, this is social media is more like giving your 13 year old a bottle of Jack Daniels and saying, Hey, make sure you don't over. Hey, I it. trust. It's not about trust. Why is it it's that about what the thing sure. is? Yeah. It's, it's not telling your teenagers, I don't trust you. It's telling your teenagers, I don't trust Silicon Valley and what they're willing to do to you to make money off of you. That's what we're saying. And so people don't like Silicon Valley here, I guess. So there you go. Yes. <laughs> And is it's, it's like what the substance itself does. It's intoxicating, it's destructive, it addicts you, and it destroys you, and it makes you terrible to the people around you. That's what growing up with your mind on TikTok and Instagram does. Uh, the data just says that. And so uh, parents are afraid of having conflict with their children, so they abdicate responsibility and let their kids decide for themselves because they trust them, a.k.a. they don't want to be the ones to have to be the source of their disappointment. And so we have to... Uh, acknowledge what the data says about how it destroys people's mental well-being. I'm not even talking about getting trafficked or getting radicalized as like some type of leftist crazy person. I'm talking about just their baseline anxiety, depression numbers. That's just what I'm talking about. And so uh, I think that uh, it's, it, the hard thing too is like the data is showing that when you have your mind uh, scrambled by this going through puberty, uh, you don't get some of it back later on. Like, it's not like you can, it's not, you're just like delaying it. Like it, it can, in many ways, impair your ability to just connect with other humans in the room. Like your ability to feel someone in the room, to look someone in the face, to, to like be affected by their emotional process in an appropriate way. Like your ability to connect with other humans. It is, it is, uh, truncating to our human development. And so, uh, I think the first thing parents should ask questions like, am I a healthy user of my social media? Which I think most of us should say. Probably not. Um, and I have a prefrontal cortex. So what shot does my kid have? And I think leading with vulnerability to our kids, saying, I can't handle this, and therefore we can't do this, is a, is a great way of approaching that. Uh, the exact tactics on like what should a 14-year-old have versus a 17-year-old versus uh, what should a 41-year-old who has a history of bad use do? Um, those are wisdom issues, and I don't want to speak to that. But I will say, like as a pastor of people, I think... You should not believe that Silicon Valley or China TikTok has your best interest in mind. They want to profit from you. And they're like, you got to think of them like the people creating slot machines in Vegas. Like they want to keep you looking. This is an attention economy that they, if they can do whatever they can to keep you looking, they will sacrifice your mental health so they can sell ads. And if you realize that that's what's going on, then you should have a little more apprehension before you just kind of cannonball into infinite scrolling. There you go. All right. All right, Dad. How, yeah. how have you handled this? 
Um, we will get to other how, questions. But. How well have I handled this or how I have know. I handled answer this? The, answer the second um, question or tell me the answer. Yeah, know. so we are learning along with, I mean, each of our kids is different. We want to handle it based on their kind of capabilities. And um, uh, we've kind of tried to do a lot of education. So we try to talk about um, some of the danger of this stuff. We restrict it uh, for different age kids. Like our two youngest, we have an 11 year old and a 13 year old who don't have phones at all. They don't have a personal digital device. Um, our older ones do, but they have various restrictions on their on their devices that we'd restrict through like their, their Apple phone. So screen the screen time app. Uh, they can't download any apps without our approval. And um, for most of our kids, social media is just not an option. We've just made that decision for them. At, as the older ones have gotten older and have convinced us of their ability to articulate the concerns, we've given a little bit more access. Mm -hmm. um, and then we watch. We watch to see how that access is handled. And then you know we reserve the right, as people who are paying for the phones, to, to withdraw that privilege if, if that is needed. Um, so that's kind of how we've thought about it. Yeah. I have one more thing, and, and I don't, again, I don't have a verse for this. This is just First Flesholonians, my opinion. Um, but it's wisdom, I think, actually, is I want to talk, especially to those of you with younger kids, because that's actually where this whole thing starts, is um, I want to encourage you, um, your kids, the default number of screen time minutes per day for your kids, the default setting should be zero. A lot of times people go, well, we give our kids an hour a day. Why? Start with a default of zero, and then they can get more. You can give them some screen time. I mean, I, we've had little kids. I know what it's like to just be overwhelmed and go, here, watch this. right? But if you start with an expectation that it is a right to have a certain number of screen time minutes a day, you are setting yourself up for this to be a huge problem later. And so that's just encouragement and wisdom uh, from what I see now. This could be a whole class. I mean, there's a lot sure. to say, yeah. All right, question number two. Here we go. It seems as though we talk very openly about sexual themes as though there are only adults in the room quite often. Why don't we give a warning for when a sermon will contain explicit content? Huh. That's an interesting observation. I, I, I know there are definitely times when we have uh, given those warnings um, and times where I know, you know, we kind of know in advance that that's something we're going to talk about. I don't know that it's always been the case. Um, One of the things I've just learned as just talking to many of you over the years is we have different opinions of what's appropriate or not appropriate with kids. We kind of use our discernment of what we think is appropriate. We also factor in that there's kids ministry up through fourth grade at every service. And we assume that you're going to take advantage of that because it's a really great experience. It's not just childcare. It's actually ministry for your kids. Um, so I think we're kind of talking to fifth grade plus um, kind of people in, in our minds. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I know as, as preachers, Seth, that's how you and I are often thinking about it is, you know, how, how does this impact a fifth grader? How does this impact this, you know, 85 year old and everyone in between? Um, so I, I, I appreciate the question. I, I, I mean, I know there's times we've done it, but the fact that this person feels like we haven't done it when they wish we had gives me pause and makes me go, Oh, maybe we could just be more thoughtful about how we do that. Yeah. I think, at least my assumption, like when we've done like counterculture convictions and we're going to talk specifically at length about trans stuff or even like specific sexuality stuff, we've given those warnings. Uh, I also think it's good for us to just everyone in the room to go, hey, I think the biggest three idols in our culture are sex, money, and power. So most weeks we're going to hit 
something with a hammer that has to do with sex, money, or power. And we're probably going to be at least, like, at a minimum, as explicit about it as the scriptures are, which is fairly explicit. Uh, in most of the books of the Bible, Jesus is, and or the prophets are creaming people on sex, money, power. And so I don't want to ever be unnecessarily graphic or specific, but I, I as a preacher, will at least want to have the freedom to say, I'm going to be as explicit as the Bible is most weeks about most stuff. Uh, and if you have feedback for me on if I'm being unnecessarily specific, then specific feedback helps me get specifically better. Uh, <laughs> but that's generally my, my instinct there. Yeah, good. Yeah. All right, next question. How did you avoid a lustful relationship as a teenager with your significant other? I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you say, there is, there is a massive assumption in that question. Yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, it, we're all laughing. It, it isn't funny. I mean, I, it is and it is. I mean, I, I love the purity of that question, even. You go, well, of course, you as pastors did. And I just want you to know everyone on this stage, and I think probably everyone in this room who's gone through puberty is a sexual sinner. Um, and so, no, I, as a teenager in dating relationships, I didn't avoid sexual sin. I didn't avoid lust. And I still carry the scars from it. There are things I can't unremember. There are things that still play around in my mind. So it's dangerous. Um, and what I'd say is that it's, you know, it's something to be taken really, really seriously. So I love, I love the question. I love that someone would be trying to do that. I think establishing, um, establishing good boundaries, having good, uh, accountability in it is, is important, but, um, but ultimately, uh, your heart's got to yield to Christ and the Lordship of Jesus, or you will give in over and over and develop patterns of giving in over and over. Do you guys have anything to that? Uh, yeah, I think that as parents, we fear that like sexual sin in our kids is like the worst possible thing that could happen. And I mean, it's certainly not something we're rooting for and it's something we want to do our best to parent through, but we believe that God's grace extends to that sin, like, like many, many others. And, um, many of our kids will go down that path. And if we set up if we establish a, a rule of life in the family that, 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 that means you're now like somehow like anathema, that's, that's probably not like, that's not what you want. Um, yeah. you don't want to exile your kids because they're struggling with the same things you struggled with. Uh, so I think to try to navigate like, Hey, there's wisdom in pursuing purity here, but this is also hard and there's grace as you walk through it. Um, that's more of a word to parents. It's not directly, an answer to that question, but I just think that's something I'm learning. And practically speaking, uh, I think that you have to understand that like sexual attraction is a good design from God. Uh, and so if you like hate being attracted to someone you like likely will marry, you're going to kind of get all uh, weird in yourself. Um, uh, two, it's, it's difficult when you're on the same page, it's almost impossible when you're not on the same page to have a pure relationship before you get married. Uh, so just be aware of that. Uh, what would, same page in terms of your Christian convictions? Yeah, if you're a Christian and you think God wants you to wait to have sex to get married, and you're dating someone who's like, never mind on that, boo on that, whenever you're ready, I'm ready. Now you have to like, that's way more difficult a temptation to have to manage. Um, three, I think that it's important to uh, 
place yourself in the boundaries that protect you, right? So if you can't handle something, don't do something. Like if you can't be in that environment, don't be in that environment. Like there's, there's, Jesus talks about if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, that's hyperbole, but his point is treat your sexual sin or possible sexual sin as harshly as necessary. You won't, you won't regret not sinning. That's just, I think one of the lies of Satan is this belief that you're, if you don't sin, then you're going to regret this misdemeanor. You're going, you're not going to regret not sinning and just believing that God has good for you, not bad for you. I think, uh, like when I was in high school specifically, like my wife and I've been dating since we were 17 and I talked to my mentor, I talked to my pastor, I talked with her, she talked with her mentor. It's there's like, you're trying to like have people who have your back and are praying for you and who are aware of like, hey, those two people are attracted to each other and they're spending a lot of alone time. How's that going? You know, like it's, it's good to be asked questions you don't want to be asked <laughs> and to anticipate those questions you don't want to be asked because they're part of God's design for accountability is to be known and to be seen. Uh, the crazy thing in this parenting deal is like we grow in our knowledge of the gospel and love of Christ through sin and suffering. Like, and yet as parents, none of us want our kids to experience sin or suffering. Like that's not a parenting strategy. So we, we do our best to help them avoid potholes. And at the same time, like we want to ha have like tons of room for grace as they're going to inevitably encounter those things. Yeah. Good. All right. Next question. Why do Catholics believe in the Eucharist versus communion? And can we as Christians participate in the Eucharist when visiting a Catholic mass? So let's define some terms first of all. So uh, there's Eucharist, there's communion. Um, this is a conversation, right? Communion is what we would celebrate here. You might also hear it called the Lord's Supper. It's where we are simultaneously remembering the gospel and what Christ has done, as well as believing that God is present with us by the Spirit as we uh, enjoy the Lord's Supper together. Um, that's different than how Roman Catholics uh, believe in the Eucharist. Um, and they would have an understanding, the theological word for it is transubstantiation, that the communion elements actually are transformed in that moment into the very body and blood of Christ. Um, this is why, by the way, many Roman Catholics, the most important thing uh, for them all the time is I gotta get to mass so I can take the Eucharist. I remember, um, this is just an anecdote, but this, this girl that we, my wife and I were friends with, uh, she would go, she did not speak one word of Spanish, but she would go to the Spanish mass on Saturday night before she went to the bars. She didn't understand a word of it, but she had to get the Jesus into her before she went and did that. And so that's like the most extreme form of just superstition type stuff. But faithful Catholics uh, would still say like, yeah, th this, is, this is a transformation of the body and blood of Jesus. So uh, Seth, I guess I'll send this to you. Why, why do we believe that versus that? And um, can we as Christians participate in the Eucharist when visiting a Catholic church? The second part to the question is the easiest part. The answer is no. Uh, Roman Catholics do not want us taking communion. They only want confirmed Roman Catholics taking communion. And so they won't want us at their table. It'd be dishonoring to them to take communion or Eucharist at their at their deal. So I think no Protestant should take communion at a Roman Catholic place, at a minimum out of honoring Roman Catholic doctrine and convictions. Uh, I think that, so the question of like, we think that the body and blood that we take represents Christ. They say it represents Christ. Like it's that he, it's this means of absolution and forgiveness of sin. It, it helps us like walk in forgiveness. And so uh, I think this is the same reason why we tell non-Christians not to take communion here, 
is, hey, if you don't think this is true, then don't participate in it. If you don't think Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, and he, then don't pretend you do in taking these elements. And I'd say the same thing to anybody in this room, that if you go to Roman Catholic Mass and they say, this is the actual body and blood of Jesus, and if you don't think that's true, then don't pretend it's true and just kind of go along with the motions. So we really see the, the death of Christ uh, once and for all, paying the price for all of the sins of all of God's people, like that the atonement was effective in removing the guilt for all of God's people, that we don't have our guilt removed again and again and again as we take the Lord's Supper again and again and again. So it's not like we build up a sin debt and then have it released when we go to communion or take Eucharist. That's not how it works. We are forgiven and we are sending ourselves at the Lord's table to be reminded and to, repre and to represent Jesus uh, and his work and to share together in the communion moment. That's important. We don't just disagree about the substance of the elements, but we actually disagree about what's happening in the act of communion, like the purpose of them. Yeah. Um, just one little recommendation is uh, there's a great little book by Tim Chester called Truth We Can Touch. It's a short little book, very readable. We actually did an Advent series a few years ago based off of that book um, where he goes much more into depth on like what does it mean and what's the significance of communion. So Truth We Can Touch by Tim Chester is a good book. Uh, next question. Would you encourage a divorced person to get remarried? Maybe. <clears throat> I mean, it really depends on a lot of follow-up questions that we'd ask. I think that that could absolutely be a, an option, or it maybe shouldn't be an option. So, Yeah, I think a, a divorced person who is illegitimately divorced, uh, Jesus says that they're committing adultery if they get re remarried or the, the person marrying them has caused them to commit adultery. So I think if it's a legitimate biblical divorce, remarriage is possible, but not necessary, uh, depending on what's going on in the situation. All right, next question. How does the death of Christ shape the mundane aspects of your life? What connection, if any, does that have to the New Testament instruction to crucify the flesh? Hmm. That's a good... How does it... Okay. Well, I think... We understand the flesh is not meaning the body, like physicality, but the flesh in New Testament would could be understood like the way the NIV translate that as sinful flesh. It's it's the person insofar as it's conformed to the world, not conformed to the created order that God's designed and, and is ruling through his spirit. And so crucifixion of the flesh is not just a deprivation of your physical body, but it's trying to put to death the parts of you that are anti-Christ, the parts of you that are sinful, the parts of you that aren't who they are going to become in the new creation. And so the ability to take a lustful thought captive and say no, the ability to repent from gluttony, to be generous instead of stingy, to be full of the fruit of the spirit rather than kind of to be a, a, a fussy person. Uh, those are all like the, the small little choices in those moments to walk in congruence with the spirit rather than the way of the world. That's part of what crucifying the flesh is. It's that slow trying to kill the parts of you which aren't connected to Christ. So that's, that's what crucify the flesh means. It's not like uh, whipping yourself or uh, uh, suffering unnecessarily. So that's what I see uh, crucifixion of the flesh uh, looks like. And that happens literally in the most mundane of moments, like the heroic acts of faithfulness that nobody else sees besides you and the Lord. Uh, those are the most mundane moments where our faith really hits the ground. Luke's got his Bible open. Seems like a good idea. I'll try. So in Romans 6, 
I mean, the Apostle Paul's addressing a lot of these very things. And in verse in verse six, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So what the New Testament teaches is that if you have faith in Christ, you're united to Jesus by the by that faith, so much so that his death is as though you died as well. So you have died. Your old self was crucified with him. But then he goes on to, to continue to say in verse 11, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So then, okay, now I'm going to think about it that way. And then verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And so that crucifying the flesh, you're crucifying the flesh because it's already crucified. And so the, the Christian life really, and I do think about this a lot, is Lord, help me to become who I already am. I already am a child of God by faith in Christ. I already am dead to sin and alive to righteousness because of Christ. I already am united to, to Jesus. Help, help me stay there. Help me live there. Help me pursue that. And so, um, you know, in, in the mundane aspects of life, I mean, there's a lot of mundane aspects of life that aren't going the way I wish they would go. Like there's frustrations and there's setbacks and there's disappointments and the more extreme versions are suffering. And, and, and when I'm walking in the spirit, uh, I am able to go, you know what, this is part of, this is part of following Jesus because Jesus went down into death. And so this is a little moment to die to myself and die to my preferences. When I'm walking in the flesh, I just grumble, <laughs> but that's how at least I'm, I'm trying to do it. Yeah. One thing I'd add, I, I think that, um, the Lord speaks to us when there's opportunities to, to do this in the mundane aspects of life, if we're listening, but if you're constantly engaged with some other voice than the Lord's, whether it's like a podcast or a radio station or a TV channel or a YouTube video, or like, like if you're, if that's all you're ever hearing, you won't hear it. And so, um, I think one of the ways just practically is I try to create space in my day, whether I'm just driving in silence, listening to the Lord and talking to him or space at night when I'm doing my stretches before I get into bed or whatever. I try to do that. I don't always, I don't always do that, but, um, create space to hear God, yeah. and then you can move forward in this. That's good. All right, next question. How do I determine if a thought or idea is from the Holy Spirit or me? I think there are a handful of ways we can test uh, what the Spirit is doing. Uh, the first thing is the Spirit is always going to teach us or say things or move us in ways that are congruent with what he's already spoken in the Scriptures. So if you're feeling prompted and it's to sin, then you know what? That doesn't line up with the Bible. So maybe that's just my flesh. So that's like the first filter is, is this like kind of sudden inertia to move or do something? Is it congruent with what the Spirit has already spoken in the Scriptures? Number two, the main function of the Spirit is to cause us to conform more fully to the image of Christ, uh, not to just kind of hocus pocus do random causes do random stuff you know is the spirit want me to yell the number 729 really loud right now you know it's like <laughs> is that helping you be more like christ or just making you weird you know so so there's but i feel like if if i'm being prompted to move in love in a way that's congruent with what i know about god especially the person of jesus and it's something that's going to be like costly or inconvenient or annoying uh i'm like maybe the spirit's asking me to do something that i wouldn't necessarily just like in my flesh want to do and so 
that's one of the tests for me of the spirit is like, if I just think this is a good idea all the time, then maybe it's just me. And that doesn't mean it's a bad idea. That doesn't mean it's still a good idea. But especially if I'm being called to move like Christ in a way that I'm kind of inconvenienced by, maybe that's the spirit prompting me. So that's some of my filter process. The only thing I'd add is, um, to some degree, like, uh, depends on what it is, but like, who cares? I mean, like, I guess it's important to know, like, if you're taking your thoughts captive, then you're taking your thoughts captive to, you know, you want to go, okay, is that from Jesus or is that from me? But sometimes what I found is people are trying to discern this so that they can tell somebody, here's this idea the Holy Spirit gave me as a form of control and manipulation, and now you have to listen to me. And so if that's the case, then I want to go, if, if you think it might be from the Holy Spirit, just say it, just do it, but you don't have to announce it and turn it into some kind of junior Holy Spirit badge thing. Yeah. The only, the only thing I'd add is that the Spirit is in all of God's people. And so a great way to discern that is to talk to other Spirit-filled Christians, yeah. which would be any Christian, um, especially like those who know you well, uh, your spouse, if you're married, um, your family, your community that, that knows you, they can, they can help you discern that as well. All right, next question. What hope would you offer for those that struggle with depression? Depression is on a huge spectrum, right? There's severely crippled, kind of can't get out of bed, ice water on the brain, like kind of a disaffected thing, all the way down to like a generalized sadness that you're able to go about your life, but there's kind of like a quiet sadness in you. And uh, to some degree, different parts of this spectrum represent soberly living in God's fallen world. Like the world is broken. The world is full of blech. The world, like there, there's so much to be depressed about, right? So especially when you can connect your depression to like a concrete thing, I don't, that's maybe not disordered depression. Maybe that's ordered depression. Like that's depressing and I'm depressed about that. That's kind of being appropriately connected to God's world. It's when there's like a depression that you can't even, so it's like uncaused. It's that would be a disordered depression. Like I, I'm not functioning well. My, maybe my brain chemistry's off. I don't, I'm not even sad about something specific. I just kind of have this low affect ugh, about it. I think part of our fallenness is not just like moral, but it's also physical. Like cancer, broken legs, uh, our brain chemistry being haywire. Like just like if you break your leg, you don't just pray about it. You pray about it and you go see a medical doctor. Like if you have a disordered brain chemistry, you don't just pray about it. You pray about it and you go and see a medical doctor or a psychiatrist or, or, or a therapist. Uh, and, and so I think it's important to make use of the tools that God has given us because he's the whole of creation uh, is under his authority. Every square inch belongs to him. And so um, the hope I would give you is that one day Christ will be back and you'll not struggle with depression anymore. And I know that for sure. That's a long, long, long range hope. In the medium term, I think sometimes we overpromise, underdeliver on how fast uh, we see the kingdom of Christ come in our hearts in various ways. And that actually like, adds to the guilt and the shame about it. And so we spiral more. And so I want you to know that if you struggle with depression, I'd say that is unfortunately normal part of this side of Christ's second coming life. And it's difficult and it stinks. And probably more people in this room are dealing with that very type of thing than you understand. 
probably one of the lies you believe is like only weird, bad Christians like me struggle with this. And that's not true. So the, the hope is that God wants to work through all of his creation and he'll eventually make all things new and he won't struggle with this anymore. But in the meantime, this is a difficult path. And we, the church, me personally, would love to talk with you through that and try to help you get connected to broader support and help. We have, I think, almost five or six people who go here who own therapy practices. Uh, that's not including just all the various therapists, right? So we, we believe in broad support. Um, sometimes it's spiritual, sometimes it's physical. Most time it's all of the above. And so uh, I hope that you know that I know that there's people, and I know some of them specifically and a lot of them generally, uh, you're not alone in that, and it's a long process walking through that stuff. All right, next question. My wife and I became covenant members a number of years ago. Now that our kids are nearing adulthood, should they engage in that covenant member process on their own? Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll share. Some of you maybe just don't know what that is. So there is a process here called covenant membership, where you basically make a commitment uh, to the the church leadership and the church uh, family to go, I want to be officially part of this church. I want to uh, be uh, called to a certain level of responsibility. I'm going to commit myself to attend and to give and to serve and to be part of community and to invite people and to really take ownership of this place. I'm going to see uh, this as a church that I'm part of, not just something I attend. And uh, I'm going to be even willing to submit myself to being called to correction if I get out of line uh, that's what the covenant membership process is. Um, anyone can do that if you go through the Rooted class. You don't have to become a covenant member if you go through Rooted, but at the end of Rooted, you always have a chance to become a member. I think you have um, to be 18, right? Yeah, you do yeah. have to be 18. Um, but uh, based on this question, I would say, yeah, as uh, if your kids um, are adult, you know, 18 plus, and they view this as their church family, um, I think it'd be wonderful for them to uh, become members here. So that's great. They're not automatically members. Correct. Yeah. All right. Next question. Why are there only male pastors at this church? Is there any difference in function between pastors and female ministry directors? Good question. Yeah. So there, there are only male pastors. That's not an accident. That's out of conviction or design. We see uh, Paul uh, in a number of places limiting the office of elders specifically to men uh, in the New Testament. You see some of that in 1 Corinthians uh, 14, some of that in 1 Timothy 2. Um, 1 Peter 5 speaks to these things. In Acts 20, Paul's speaking to a bunch of men and talks about these things. So that aspect is uh, on purpose. We think that the primary function of the office of elder is to, at least historically speaking in the Protestant tradition, uh, it's kind of do three things. It's the right dividing of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the right exercise of church discipline. And so right now the way that means is that only male pastor elders uh, do those three things, which we see as being the Sunday pulpit, the keeping of the membership document, the screening for membership interviews, and baptism interviews, and doing the Lord's Supper. So those are the way those things function right now. So rather than, uh, so whereas those are the things that we think are reserved to the office of elder slash pastor, Whereas all other functions of like teaching, administrating, running, and uh, leading through the church are open to men and women, not just who are elders. So um, women help teach uh, women in our women's studies. Women help teach men and women in our membership classes. 
uh, women lead worship, women do a variety of things. And so the, the primary difference in function between like a ministry director versus a male pastor um, is going to be located in that the, what we, the things are reserved to be for the male pastor elders as a ministry function. Uh, a lot of that's rooted in like what we think the Bible's teaching. A lot of that's rooted in the way we're kind of trying to do our best to understand and submit to various texts, right? So like in Romans 16, Paul talks a ton about all his co-laborers in ministry that are women. You have women teaching in a variety of contexts in the book of Acts. Uh, you have uh, women being referred to as like missionaries or apostles possibly in various contexts in Romans 16. So uh, the scriptures are very clear that women exercise and lead and execute broad varieties of ministry functions. And we think that God through Paul and other writers in the New Testament are limiting office of elder to men. And so trying to hold both those things in tension is our goal. Uh, I don't think we do that perfectly. I think sometimes we do that okay. So that's kind of <laughs> how exactly all those things function. I'm not totally sure on it. Uh, I'm like 70-30 about a lot of that stuff. So if you want to know where I'm when, at. So to so follow that up, when it's like just okay versus it's right. Well, I think like where does that where do you see that pop up? So I think that one of the problems of having or not maybe not one of the liabilities having male only elders creates is you have a group of men speaking to decisions that really affect tons of women, especially like marriage, marital abuse, things like that. And I think we're still too slow to elevate and solicit and listen to or even submit to. Uh, women with expertise voices in some of those situations or circumstances. I think that part of being complementarian means we think that men and women are different and complementary. And if that's true, then different perspectives being gathered on certain issues is vital to have the full picture. And I think we're too slow to get that full picture. So uh, some of it's in function, some of it's in us, like these some of those poor instincts. Uh, so that's some of the places, right? So like we're kind of just okay on some of that stuff. Yeah. I think we're the trajectory's better. Uh, some of the ladies on staff might agree or disagree with me on that, <laughs> but uh, we're working on it. So I'm not, I'm not. I don't want to be overly defensive about our practice as much as say like we're always trying to submit to all the scriptures, uh, even when they feel like they kind of exist in tension. Great. All right. Next question. How do you navigate and participate as a Christian in a job, sport, et cetera, where a majority of people around you are not believers and even hostile to Christianity? How do you hold your ground and coexist with them? Good question. Yeah. Um, that's a lot of people a lot of the time. That's probably most of you. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know about holding your ground. Like the, the term hold your ground feels a little more like militant than I, than I would necessarily feel in some of those environments. I obviously work at a church, but I exist in a lot of other environments and I have worked in the secular world. I think that the image that I prefer is just like the image of salt and light. Like I'm trying to add the goodness of God in the gospel to whatever environment I'm in. And sometimes that, that does mean saying, Hey, I, I can't go along with this. I just don't believe it's right. But, but it's, but, but hopefully you're able to have that conversation in the context of people seeing you and understanding you and knowing you as someone who adds value to, to the space that you're in. Um, someone that's actually a source of life, not, not a source of like bummer. Um, and so, you know, that's like, 
when Christy and I interact in like sports, that was an example, we're trying to be like, we're trying to love people in a way that actually like takes them seriously. That's actually curious. That's compelling enough for them to go, what's going on with you guys? Like what, what's different about you? And that that's, you know, not always possible, but, um, I think one of the key yeah. distinctions here would be, um, if you feel like, um, I'm trying to be a faithful Christian, but being around these people, it's, it's tempting me to sin, right? I'm getting kind of caught up in the lifestyle. I'm getting caught up in the happy hour. I'm getting caught up in these things. And it's, you know, I'm feeling kind of tempted by it. In that case, I would go, okay, yeah, you got to hold your ground. And you maybe even want to be more public about your faith with those people so that, because they will have a tendency to go, hey, man, I know you, I know you don't do this kind of thing. And they'll actually give you a way out. <laughs> um, on the other hand, if it's like, no, I'm not really tempted to fall in those ways. I just am trying to represent Christ to these people. Well, then love, love them like crazy. Um, pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Um, when, when life conversations come up that are like, hey, that's contentious, or I don't agree with that. Like, I don't know. D do it the way the relationship can handle. Um, but I don't think you need to feel like on every given conversation, I need to like make sure I make some point uh, to prove something. I mean, I think it's, you're, trying to, you're trying to love them with truth and grace, and as God opens doors for the gospel, you, you share it. And one final thought. Oh, sorry. You said final thought. Okay, so. final thought for me uh, is just like the call to follow Christ is a call to suffer. And so that probably will mean in some of these instances, you'll be misunderstood, you'll be labeled like unfairly, and you'll be mistreated. Like that is the, that is the road that Jesus followed that he promised we would go down if we followed him. I don't love that. Like I, I'm not rooting for that, but that is, that is what we're signing up for when we're signing up to follow him. Yeah, I think especially when someone's hostile to Christianity, uh, one of the things that commanded to do is like to not revile when reviled to turn the other cheek and i think being able to have that vulnerability like that's part of the way of christ is he went from throne in heaven to vulnerable like that's the incarnation and so when someone's like reviling christianity just being able to say like in this non-anxious presence like hey just so you know like that's me you're talking about and if you want to talk more about it we can do that and so kind of like an invitation and even like this kind of vulnerable self-disclosure like Hey, just so you know, like those people you're talking about, I'm one of them. And so it kind of hurts my feelings. It makes me feel awkward. Like having that kind of emotional vulnerability. It's like, if you want to talk more, I'm willing. But if you don't want to, I understand. Because because I, I feel like even that kind of humanizes, because people love talking about those people out there, because you feel really tough when you're talking about those people. But then when it's me looking at you across the table, we kind of like we tend to like uh, chill ourselves out a little bit. So sometimes that can be a door to open that. Even saying like, hey, that was hurtful to me when you said that about Christians. What would you say, so this isn't exactly this question, but this is my follow-up. I'd be curious, Seth, what you'd say is, if, if it says, how do I navigate a job where the, the corporate culture is hostile to Christianity or the corporate culture is so embracing of secular progressivism, which is hostile to Christianity, how do I faithfully represent that, right? Like we're on the Zoom call and everyone has to introduce themselves with their pronouns. Do I participate? Do I not? You know, I've got these, I'm, I'm involved in interviews and HR and DEI and all these things going on. And like, what do I, do I just become a private Christian? Do I go big and go bold and then find a new job? Like, what do I, <laughs> what do I do? This is one of those situations where I think uh, 
being a pastor is a lot easier than being a different job most a lot of the time. Because fortunately, my workplace is pretty uh, forgiving of my Christianity. You know, so <laughs> I don't. But like when money's on the line, it's tough. And and so I think it's important to have to seek out Christians, like maybe in this church or like at your workplace, and to have like there's a, a degree to which other people can get what you're going through better than any of us on this stage are going to, because we just don't know. Like it's one thing to be on the front lines and the trenches. It's another thing to be calling plays and to not have to like deal with that. And so it's pretty easy for me to be like, just be bold about your faith. Cause it's like, I literally get paid money to be bold about my faith. And so, uh, I just don't get that. And so I know it's difficult. I know it's challenging. I know there's moral questions along the way. And, uh, I don't know what the details of those are. I do think that being a, a private Christian is unacceptable. I think it's a non sequitur. I don't think it's a possibility. Uh, I think Christ was crucified in the public square, and so probably we will be too. Uh, and I think doesn't think, I don't think that means we have to be like all bombastic all the time. Uh, I think being shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves is what Christ called us to be, and that shrewdness means it's not there's wisdom and tact and strategy and intentionality and prayerfulness. Uh, so, good luck. Um. All right, we got time for maybe one, maybe two questions, depending on what we do here. So let's do the next next question. If salvation and eternity with God is the ultimate reward, what is the point of the other rewards or crowns in heaven that are referenced in the New Testament? Um, what's that? What should I say? <laughs> Sorry, trying to tell me. Yeah, I mean. I just think it, if, if, uh, if the Bible is trying to motivate you with rewards, then there's nothing wrong with the rewards. It's actually a good thing. Um, if Jesus is saying, hey, you should uh, um, store up treasure in heaven, then you should store up treasure in heaven. So I, I guess I would say like uh, it's possible to have, I mean, yes, we're all going to have eternity um, if you're in Christ, but to have more rewards, whatever those look like. Is that more capacity to enjoy the Lord? Is that more proximity to uh, something? I, I don't know what that is exactly, but the Bible seems to use rewards as a motivator, so we should allow it to motivate us. Yeah, you, you've mentioned to me about Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven, mm -hmm. and I think he uses the metaphor in there of like you go to the concert, everyone at the concert's having a great time, but the people in the front row are having the best time. <laughs> like people in the back row aren't like disappointed, but people in the front row are having a better time. So to some degree, that might be a metaphor that applies. I don't really know, but Randy Orkren said it, so. There you go. <laughs> All right, let's do one more, a last question. Unless he thought that was the last question. All right, here we go. Uh, during the next year, is it, is it misplaced to focus attention on politics and election news? Is it an idol that takes us away from our focus on God? That's a good question. Um, I think it can be, you need to, you need to be able to discern that for yourself and you need to discern how much is helpful. Um, I think one way to discern it would be to ask people who are close to you, Hey, do you see more of the fruit of the spirit in me when I spend X number of hours or whatever engaging in this? Um, and if the answer is definitively no, then it's probably not, um, a helpful kind of direction to focus, uh, 
but I, I do think like it's important for us as Christians to understand what's going on in this world because it's God's world and we're, we've been given a, a mission in it to, to glorify him and to share the good news of the gospel. And so we want to be able to speak to what's, to what's happening, uh, but we also don't want to be like formed and shaped by the principalities and powers of political forces. So, I've been thinking about the parable of the Good Samaritan a lot lately and how it applies to something like this. Right, so in the story, there's a man who gets creamed by these bandits and left for dead on this path. And then a, a Levite walks by, sees him, and just keeps going. A priest walks by, sees him, and keeps going. And then a good Samaritan comes, sees him, has compassion, and acts, and does something about it. And I think one of the principles you get from this is that part of what makes someone guilty of failing to love their neighbor is when they see someone and do nothing and keep going. And so proximity is a huge part of that. Like it's in conservative ethics, they call it the proximity principle, that who you're closest to are the people you owe the most to. What made the Levite and the priest so heinous in that story was that they were right there and they kept going. So proximity is a big one. And number two is ability. The fact that they had the ability to help that person and went on. And so much of like national politics is filling our minds with what is not proximate and with information that we have no ability to act on it. And so that's part of the reason why it makes us so angry and anxious is because you don't have the ability or the proximity to do anything about this. You should have all this information that you don't have to like hold in your body and be fired up about, and you can't do anything besides be fired up about it. And anger is not a fruit of the spirit. And so I think it, we do really well if we focused more on what we're, where we have proximity and where we have ability rather than all this attention to places where we have no proximity and no ability. And it, it's not good for our hearts, our souls, our neighbors. If I look past my wife and my kids to the TV to be mad about something that's happening in Palestine, uh, I'm like very guilty of the things I'm mad at them for doing. Like I'm failing to love my neighbor. And so I think we have to understand the proximity principle and the ability principle in terms of stewarding our energy to love well. Great. Matthew, will you pray for us? Absolutely. Um, God, thanks for this time together. Thanks for how you work through your church, um, how you work through your spirit and your word. I pray that you would continue that work, Lord, into this next year as we leave uh, Redemption Gateway behind and move to become Ironwood Church. Lord, we want to be people with soft hearts and steel spines. We want to be people who are led by your spirit, um, who stand on the firm foundation of Christ as revealed in your word. Um, and God, we want you to form us more and more into your image for your glory and for the hope of the world. So we pray you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.